0: A few weeks ago, we wrapped up in Acts chapter two, and at the end of Acts chapter two, we saw the coming of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, we saw the birth of the Christian church. As we read through Acts chapter two, we saw that the apostles, that they were given great power to preach the gospel with not meekness, but with great boldness. And at the end of of chapter two, we saw the church was growing not just steadily, not just incrementally, but it says that the church was growing at a rapid pace. And so this morning we pick back up in Acts and we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. For most of you, you will take your Bibles and you will open them to 3. The rest of you will turn your Bibles on and you will scroll to Acts chapter 3. Either way is perfectly fine. We just want you to be able to follow along as we're in Acts chapter 3. And Acts chapter 3, it's broken into two different sections. There's the first half and the second half. And in the first half, verses 1 through 10 of Acts chapter 3, there's this incredible miracle that Peter and John are a part of. Of course, we know it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that this miracle occurs. And then in the second half, verses 11 through 26, Peter gives his second recorded sermon. Of course, the first we read about in chapter 2. And it's going to be my attempt this morning to get through the entire chapter of chapter 3 and then at the end for our response time this morning, it's going to be a little different Our response is going to be for all believers, for every person that has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, whether you're a member of this church or not, whether you're a Baptist or not, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, our response today will be to observe the Lord's Supper together. So I want to spend the majority of our time um, in the message looking at the second half of chapter 3 and and reading and studying about Peter's incredible message. But before we get there, let me try to to summarize this miracle that occurred in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Uh, The author, Luke, is telling us that Peter and John, that they're on their way to the temple. And they're on their way to the temple, and this was the hour of prayer. And on their way to the temple, they encounter a crippled man. And scripture tells us that this crippled man had been lame since birth. He couldn't walk. We know that he was 40 years old. We also know that he must have had some pretty good friends because these friends are the ones who literally carry him day after day. We're not sure for how long, if it was years, if it was decades. And they bring him before what's known as the beautiful gate. And they lay him at this beautiful gate. And as he's sitting here at this beautiful gate, day after day, he's asking for alms. That's just a fancy word saying that he wanted charity. He was looking for money. He must have been a pretty intelligent guy because he knew that surely that religious men and women that were on their way to the temple to pray that they would have some compassion in their heart and they would want to stop and and give him some money. So the reason that he stood or that he didn't stand, the reason that he sat outside of of this beautiful gate was because he was not allowed to go any closer to the temple. Why is that? Because he was crippled. And because he was crippled, most rabbis assumed that those who were unclean, which, by the way, anyone that was born with a a physical deformity would have been considered unclean, especially in the first century, he was not allowed to go any closer to the sanctuary beyond those gates. So this man who had been lame for 40 years, he was considered a social outcast by most people. As he's sitting out there by the the gates, there was something much more than just being broken physically. He was considered, might as well have been considered a a death sentence. He was broken not only physically, but he had to have been broken emotionally. Everyone just passing by him, nothing else to do other than be carried to sit outside of the, the temple gates. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had to have been broken physically, I mean, and also spiritually. We know that he was broken he was humiliated, and he was hopeless. And then in verse four of chapter three, I want you to see Peter and John, they say something unusual to this man as he's begging for money. Look at chapter three, verse four. It says, "And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, "Look at us." Now you have to imagine, put yourself in the scene that this man who's been sitting there for all this time, that when someone says, "Look at us as they're passing by, that you're probably thinking they're going to give me what?" You can talk out loud. They're going to give me what? Money. That's what he was wanting. But Peter and John, they don't offer to give him money. They offer something so much greater. Look at verse 6, how they respond. It says, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This reminds me of a story of a pastor by the name of J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer is a pastor of a large church called the Summit Church in the Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina. And this is, as you know, Raleigh-Durham will be a college town. So he writes about it in this book where he says, you know, that the attendance whenever school's in session, man, it triples. But most college students are what? They're broke, right? So he says our average offering goes up $17 whenever school's in session. So he's talking about this one Sunday that the offering plate passes by, And a broke college student, he literally puts in a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. And on the offering, on this biscuit, on the wrapper, he writes this. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you. (laughs) He gave all he had, right? Peter didn't have money to give this lame man. But he had something so much more incredible that he is going to offer him in the name of Jesus. So in the name of Jesus, he commands this man who had never walked a day in his life. For over 40 years, he could not use his legs. He commands him to rise up and walk in Jesus' name. And look what happens in verse seven and eight. I want you to notice the verbs that Luke uses as he writes this. It says, and he took him by the right hand and he raised him up. And what? Immediately. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood, he began to walk, and he entered in the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. This lame man, it doesn't say he just slowly hobbled up and it took him and he had to grab his arms and his legs and then slow. No, no, no. It, Luke writes, he says, immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. It's interesting to, to note that because remember what was Luke's profession? He was a, a doctor. So it makes sense that he would notice that, look at, look at his feet, look at his ankles, they're being made strong, and immediately he begins to leap up, he stands, he begins to walk, and he enters in the temple. One moment he's lame, the next moment he's trying out for dancing with the stars, right? I mean, this happened, it was just all of the sudden. And where's the first place that this lame man goes when he can walk? To the temple, What's the significance about that? Why is it important? Why is it that Luke wants us to know the first place he goes after 40 years of not being able to walk, he immediately goes up and he goes in the temple. There's two things I want you to notice about why it's important to note that the lame man goes in the temple. The first is because it shows us that because he was disabled, he had never been able to go in the temple. And it's proof that he was completely healed that the men standing at the temple gates, that they let him in. Because if he was just halfway healed, if he was halfway crippled, he would not have been allowed in. So the, the fact that he goes into the temple is proof that he was completely healed. Amen. The second reason it's important to know why he goes in the temple is because he entered. Remember, Peter and John were on, the, on their way to the temple because it was the hour of prayer. So the fact that this man lame from birth, goes into the temple, it's showing that he recognized that his healing didn't come from Peter and John. His healing came completely from God, so much so that the first thing he does is to worship God. Oh, if that was our first response. We pray and we pray and we pray, and then we get an answer, and then we forget, oh, we forget that we prayed that. What if our first response was the same as this man? God, you answered my prayer. Immediately, I'm going to go, and I'm going to praise you for what you have done. Now, imagine the number of people that had seen this man. I always tell you that when we read Scripture, I want to make sure that we, we read it in context. So for, I'm imagining for decades, this man had been sitting at the temple gates and they had seen him begging, they had seen him asking for money. I don't know how many people, but there had to have been hundreds, if not thousands of people that had had their eyes on him, that had seen him time and time again, just sitting there. And now they have just witnessed this man. Now he's leaping, he's jumping, he's going into the temple, he's praising God. So it only makes sense that this would cause a stir in the city, This wasn't a quiet miracle that was performed. And look at verses 9 and 10. It says, all the people who saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. Hey, we remember him. We've seen that guy before. We know exactly who he is. And look what the next verse says. And they, what? They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They were filled with wonder and amazement. This man that we had seen lame, crippled since birth, now we see him and we are filled with wonder and amazement. I don't want you to miss that there's an incredible illustration in this lame man. The illustration is one that happens to each and every one of us when we trust Christ as Savior, when we follow him. It's a picture, really, of salvation. You see, this lame man, he was born lame, right? He was born lame, just like each and every one of us. We are all born unable to walk. We are unable to please God. We are born into sin. There's nothing we can do to please God, just as that man was born lame. That man, not only was he born lame, he was poor. He didn't have any money. Just as we are born sinners, we are born bankrupt before God, we owe God a debt that you and I could never repay him because of our sin that's caused the separation. We're poor as well. We also see that this man, where was he sitting outside? He was sitting outside the temple. And because he was outside the temple, he was separated from God. And friends, you and I, we are separated from God because of our sin apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. This man was as close to the temple as you could get. He was right there. He was at the temple. And my fear is there are so many people that we know that we love maybe in this room that we are so close to having salvation, but we think, oh, well, I come to church. Well, I gave an offering. Well, I didn't. It doesn't matter how close you are unless you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are still separated from God. And there's nothing that brings us together, not our good works, not our actions, not our charity, apart from trusting Jesus and his blood is our redemption. Now, this man, once he was healed... He was healed how? By completely, by the grace of God. I love that Luke tells us that his his healing was immediate. That's how Jesus works, doesn't he? Immediately salvation came to him and he gave evidence of what God had done by walking, by leaping, by praising God. There was no question who this man identified with once he had been healed. Everyone there knew hey, this man's giving praise to God. This man's identifying himself with these apostles because he's going into the temple. He's praising God. He's saying that it was in the name of Jesus that I was healed. And my question for us is, do people know the same thing about us? If we've been touched by the grace of God, if we have been given salvation, if we have gone from death to life, do people know that our, the identifying mark in our life is not our occupation it's not our family, it's not our house, it's not our livelihood, but what identifies us more than anything else is that we have been marked by God. We have been given the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And before we move on to this miracle that occurs at the end of chapter three, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to see that chapter two and chapter three, they, they follow the same format. The same format is there's a miracle that occurs. Remember in chapter two, it was the the Holy Spirit that comes, the tongues of fire and the wind and the fire that's above them. And then Peter preaches a sermon. The same thing happens here. There's a miracle followed by a sermon. The point is each of these miracles, it wasn't given to to say, oh man, what a great God. Look how incredible he is. Man, look how awesome these, no, no. no. The miracles, the, the reason that God gave them these miracles was to point to the fact that Jesus really is who he says he is that Jesus really is the Son of God, and now Peter's going to verbalize, here's what you need to hear. I I love reading Acts chapter 2 and 3 together. Because when you read Acts chapter 2, after the miracle, after Peter's sermon, do you remember how many people were saved that day? Three what? 3,000 people were saved. And then in the very first part, what we've just talked about in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10... The focus, it's not on 3,000. The focus now is on how many people? One. What I think this passage shows us and what I think God is trying to teach us is that those who reach the many, they also care about reaching the one. They don't just focus on the masses, but they know that each and every person matters to God. And it is my heart's prayer That as a congregation, that we would have compassionate hearts. That when we see those that need physical needs, that need to be met, that we would jump to the fact that we can meet those needs. When we see them with emotional needs, when we see them with spiritual needs, that we would have compassionate hearts. That we would go out of our way to reach every individual, not just to reach the masses. It's easy for us to say, oh, I long for the day that once again First Baptist can have a thousand people in worship. And believe me, I I long for that as well. But that's easy to say, whoa, I can't wait till we add 300 more people into our services. Maybe the more difficult question is, who's the one, that God that you placed on my heart? Who's the one person that I see on a regular basis every day, maybe once a week? Who is that one that you have placed on my heart that you have given me the opportunity to speak truth, to speak life, to invite them to church? So here we are, going back to Acts chapter three, and and we see that Peter and John are in the same place where just a few weeks ago Jesus was. We're inside; It's called Solomon's Portico, outside the temple. And in this place, it's very significant because this is where Jesus was teaching and the Jewish people, they were so upset with him, they tried to stone him to death. And so now you have Peter and John in the same place with this incredible opportunity who you would think would be scared to death because they know what happened to Jesus. But now, because they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit... They're not going to miss this opportunity. Again, let's pause for a second. Let's take a step back. This is the same Peter that we're about to read about who's going to preach this incredibly bold sermon in front of the most strict Jewish men and women in all of the world. He's about to say these words. The same Peter who just a few weeks ago denied Jesus how many times? Three times before probably a teenage girl. If this isn't evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit that can bring transformation to someone's life, I don't know what is. So Peter now, he's going to boldly proclaim to his audience there that they need Jesus just as much as that lame man did. Now they may not need physical healing the way that that lame man did, but they need Jesus in order for the spiritual healing so that they might be made whole. Listen to the first part of the sermon that he gives in verses 12 through 16. It says, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Talking about this miracle they've just seen that they're not sure what's going on. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, you denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. He goes on. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and you know. By the way, this wasn't just some random, you know this man, and you saw him. Lame, now you've seen him well. And the faith that is through Jesus has has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Talk about being bold. Peter standing there before the Jewish high council saying, look, this is what you Jews, this is what you did to Jesus. Look at the words that he uses there. He says, not only did you, first he says, you delivered him over. Not only you delivered, then you denied him. And then finally, if that's not enough to deliver, him, then you killed him. I mean, he's going in for the, the, the punch here. And even worse, he says, you killed him. You handed over the author of life to be traded in for a what? For a murderer. So that he might be, I mean, he might be crucified so this murderer could go free. Now, there's three titles in there that, that, that's used for Jesus in this passage. And remember, anytime the, uh, the scripture uses these words of God or names of God or words for Jesus, it's not by accident. You just throw in these names. There's significance to the three titles he uses for Jesus. The first one he uses is Servant of Jesus. He you knows He's servant, Jesus. And what he's doing there, this calls to mind the prophecy of Isaiah 53. And if you were here with us on Good Friday, that was the passage that we looked at to where this passage, remember, was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And this passage, it prophesied um, that there would be a Messiah who would come. And this Messiah would be a man of sorrows who would be acquainted with grief, that he would be one who would bear the sins of his people. And he said, hey, that servant Jesus you were talking about in Isaiah, by the way, that's him. He's the one that you denied. He's the one that you killed. Then the other title he uses, he says, he's the holy and righteous one. Peter here, he's trying to say, hey guys, he was more than just a good man. He was more than just a good teacher. By calling him a holy and righteous one, Peter is saying, he is God himself. And finally, he says, the author of life. Do you notice the irony that Peter's playing here? You took a murderer and you released him so that the author of life could be killed by you. And you see, what what Peter is doing here is he knew that the men and women of that day, they must be convicted over their sin before they could truly experience salvation. Before someone can come to Christ, they first must understand that they have sinned and they must be convicted of their sin. See, unless a patient is convinced that they are sick, they're never going to accept the diagnosis that the doctor gives them. They have to know, first of all, I know I've got a problem. Now I'm willing to receive the the diagnosis that you're going to give me. And what Peter's doing here, he's taking this temple, and in essence, he's turning it into a courtroom. He said, all right, here's the courtroom, and I'm going to lay all the evidence out here for you so that you can make a decision. But then Peter, he teaches his audience how they can rightly respond to the gospel message. And by the way, it's the same way that you and I can rightly respond to that message, and that is accepting Christ through faith alone in Jesus. See, just as that lame man, he was healed by faith in the name of Jesus. See, in verse 17, a lot of them try to give credit to Peter and John, saying, oh, you're this miracle worker, and you've got this magic spell, no, no, and they always point him, back, and it's not in our name, it's in the name of Jesus. Now he's about to tell them, look, you too can be forgiven of your sins, but there's two things you must do in order to be forgiven of your sins. You must first turn to Christ in faith, and then you must repent of your sin. So he's announced the crime. He's laid out, he's presented the evidence. And then in an incredible turn of events, if he's playing the lawyer here now, he's going to offer a pardon. He's going to say, but there is a way out. And look with me in verses 19 and 20. I think this is the heart of Peter's sermon in these two verses. He says, Repent, therefore, and what? Turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus therefore repent what's the therefore therefore it's always always told whenever you're reading scripture he's saying listen guys in light of the fact that you jews that you denied him that you killed the author of life that you killed him in order that you could release a murderer in light of the fact that we now know that jesus is the fulfillment of god's plan for salvation he is the fulfillment of god's plan for redemption in light of all that listen guys there's still time to be saved you too can still come back to God. All you have to do is repent and turn to Christ and you'll be saved. Now what does it mean to to repent of your sin? It means a lot more than just to feel sorry. Sorry I'm caught. I'm sorry I did that. True repentance, it's admitting first that what God says is true. Not what you feel, not what your mama taught you, not what culture says, not what the media says. I'm going to say that God's standard is true, so I'm going to admit that first. And then when I know that God's word is my standard, because it's true, you're going to then change your mind about your sin. You're going to change your mind. This is how I feel, this is what I want to do, but I know this is what God's word says, so I'm going to change my mind, and as a result of changing my mind to conforming to God's word, now I'm going to change direction, and now I'm going to turn towards Christ a few weeks ago, a staff member sent me a tweet that that someone sent and and she sent this and it's from Tim Keller who is just an incredible teacher and he said this, he said, legalistic remorse says I broke God's rules while real repentance says I broke God's heart. As a result of repentance, what's the next phrase that Peter uses in verse 19? He says, repent and what? Turn back. Those two go hand in hand. Repent and and turn back unless we turn from our sins we can't place our complete trust in jesus we can't follow jesus while we're still carrying our sin we can't follow jesus until first we repent and we turn from our sins because we're facing the opposite direction of jesus so when we repent we turn and we face our lord and savior and we walk in the light of his mercy and grace and we say the world behind me the cross before me that's what it means to really repent I think in many cases, the local church, we've lost the meaning of what it means to repent. As individual Christians, we we watered down what it means to be convicted over our sin. Church family, may we constantly have sensitive hearts so that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, that's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, he is to convict us of our sin. And my prayer is that when we are convicted, that as a result, we repent and we turn back to God. We change our mind, we change course, and then we turn back to God. And as we close this morning, before we celebrate and observe the Lord's Supper, I want you to look one last thing. I want you to see what Peter tells them would happen if they do repent. This is what will happen if you do turn back to Jesus. These are incredible promises that are offered to you and me today if you and I will repent of our sin, turn to Jesus. Here's what Luke says. This is what is offered to you. Actually, Peter says it. In in verse 19, the first thing he says you can have is total forgiveness. That your sins may be blotted out. This one phrase is an incredible summary of the gospel. That your sins could be blotted out. See I've said time and time again that the deepest problem that you and I have it's not from sources or people or things outside of us our deepest problems in life doesn't come from our family doesn't come from our past doesn't come from the wayward culture that we live in the deepest problem that you and I have is inside of us and it's our own sinfulness And this is a word picture that Peter's using because in the first century when they would write on parchment, they would use this ink and the ink literally, it would just lay, it would just kind of stand on top of the parchment. And if they wanted to remove it, they would take a sponge and they would wet it and they would blot it out and it would be gone. And that's the picture that Peter is giving here. You see, we live in a culture where we must understand that sin must be punished. We like to say, oh, well, can't God just say, oh, I'm gonna wipe the slate. No, 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 God wouldn't be just if he didn't punish sin. Sin has to be punished, but the good news is that when we turn to Christ, that God wipes out our sin and we no longer bear the penalty of our sin because Christ bore that penalty for us. Now listen, to me, if you haven't heard anything else I've said all morning, I want you to wake up right now, all right, this is the most important thing you're gonna hear, if you're a follower of Jesus, understand that when you trusted Christ as Savior, when you repented of your sins and gave your life to Jesus, this is what happened. "'Jesus Christ has wiped out all of your wrongs. "'As far as the east is from the west, "'so far have I removed your sins from you.'" Not only that, we no longer have any guilt. Your sin has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Stop lugging around that guilt from your past. It has been forgiven. Jesus bore that guilt for you. You no longer are under any condemnation. All of those things have been given to us through Jesus. And here's something else to hold on to. He's already wiped away all of your sin. Your sin has been totally forgiven. And in the future, for those of us that have gone through tragedy, for those of us that are going through depression, for those of us that are going through difficult times in our life, know that he promises there's going to be a day that not only has he wiped away all our sin, but one day he's gonna wipe away all of our tears. That's the promise that we can hold on to as followers of Jesus. Remember, this world isn't our home. It only gets better after this. He's totally forgiven you of your sin. Verse 20, he gives you spiritual refreshment. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And simply a reminder that those who turn to Jesus will find rest. The entire world is seeking ways that they can have peace with this eternal God. Maybe they call him a different name. Maybe they call him something that's not even biblical. And they're trying to obtain this peace with him. This salvation through good works, through doing all these things. But as Christians, we know that Jesus has come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Just come to me. And finally, he offers complete restoration. Verse 20, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Who is that? That's Jesus. Christ gives us hope that we can endure the difficulties of this life. How are we to endure the difficulties that we face day in and day out? Because he's promised to give us the glory that's to come, the glory that's not here on this side of eternity, but it's on the other side of eternity. Don't forget this. The gospel, Peter tells us in 1 Peter, the gospel gives us an unshakable hope. Nothing can take it from us that our best days are yet to come why because this earth is not our home In church family it's this gospel it's in this name that's above every other name the servant jesus the holy righteous one the author of life that we celebrate and we reflect now the freedom that he purchased for us it wasn't free it came through the blood through the sacrifice of jesus christ And it's now that we're going to celebrate, that we're going to observe that freedom that was purchased for us. His body that was broken for our sin. His blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, Jesus who promises us that we have no guilt, no condemnation because Jesus bore it for us and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today that has not let go that guilt, has not let go uh, whatever they're struggling with, that if they are a child of yours, that they would take hold of the gospel that you have given to us, saying that we're forgiven, it's in the past. And they would walk in the light of the victory that has been purchased for us. And Lord, if there's someone here today that has never trusted you as Lord and Savior, they've been trying to attain salvation based on their efforts, I pray they would lay that down and today they would repent of their sin. They would turn to you and they would trust you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we take these next few moments and we reflect on your sacrifice, would you make that sacrifice even more real to us right now? The price that was paid for our redemption the price that was paid so that we might be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. We thank you for your love, and we thank you for your sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.